Hello and welcome to 251, Two Pianists, Five Podcasts, One Subject. And our subject for Series 2 is the pianist Kenny Drew. I'm Simon Whiteside. My name is Nick Tomlin. And we've already looked at Kenny Drew's career up until sort of 1957-58. And the early part of his career, in a way, sort of mirrored that of the subject of our first podcast series, Sonny Clark, in that he spent some time on the West Coast, about three, three years, and then he moved back to New York. Uh, the difference in Kenny Drew's case is that he then went on to move to Europe and spent the rest of his life, in fact, uh, in Europe. So uh, we left him in sort of 1957-58. So what was he doing around this time, Simon? What was happening? Yes, uh, he'd recorded in 57, he recorded Blue Note um, albums with lots of different people. Of course, Blue Train was one of them, which we talked about in the last podcast. And then he started recording with lots of other Blue Note artists, also Prestige and Riverside, but very much based in the sort of Hackensack studio up until it moved um, to, to the New Jersey uh, Inglewood Cliffs site. And those people were people like Buddy Rich, Tina Brooks, Jackie McLean, sometimes, in fact, even there's a sextet with those two uh, saxophone players. And then he did some albums with them separately. Blues Nick is a, is a particular high point, I think. Johnny Griffin, he recorded with him. Uh, and he also then started to forge a relationship with Kenny Dorham, and he made some very fine albums with him. Uh, slightly after the album we're going to talk about, Undercurrent. Um, the other parallel, of course, the other thing we didn't mention in the parallel career with Sonny Clark is that Sonny Clark did, in fact, die uh, in the early 60s. So... Kenny Drew had a considerably longer career in Europe after that period. So we're now going to talk about the album Undercurrent after this. Undercurrent was recorded at the new Van Gelder studio in Englewood Cliffs on December the 11th, 1960, although it wasn't released until 1961. And the band on this recording were obviously Kenny Drew on piano, Sam Jones on bass, Lewis Hayes on drums, uh, Hank Mobley on tenor sax and Freddie Hubbard on trumpet. And what's interesting about this album is it's all original tunes. Um, there were no standards on this date. And the tunes they recorded were um, Undercurrent, Funkosity, Lion's Den, The Pots On, Grooving the Blues and Ballad. Yeah, I think we should also point out that, uh, which we didn't do in the introduction, that 1959 is a dead year for his recordings, and he didn't make any recordings at all in 1959, which, considering it's one of the kind of iconic years of jazz, is really quite interesting. However, he was in Miami for that time, and his son was born, Kenny Drew Jr., was born in late, I think late 1958, but certainly in 1958. And I'm just wondering whether it was a... You know, the birth of his son, maybe trying something, or it's even possible that he kind of ran away in the sense that I know Kenny Drew Jr. was not raised by his father in any way. He was raised, in fact, by Kenny Drew Sr.'s mother or his grand grandmother and aunt. And it was the, she was a classical pianist and she taught both of them basically how to play mm. at an early age. So, 59 is a bit of a weird year, and I, we don't, I couldn't find anything out, I don't know if you could, about the, his 
Kenny Drew Jr.'s birth mother. I don't know who she no, was. No, no, there isn't very much information. Really. We do know from the album notes of um, this album that Ballard was written for, in inverted commas, a very special lady. So I don't know um, what was going on there, really. But he did get married in, um, when he moved to Europe later on. Yes, yeah. So we're going to talk first about the tune um, Undercurrents. Interestingly, that was not the first tune. The, the album, as we've talked before, you get approximately 40 minutes, 20 minutes aside on an LP. And uh, sometimes tunes are recorded in a different order in the studio. And it gives us a slight idea of how the session went because Rudy Van Gelder used to number takes numerically. So you'd start at one and end up at wherever for that particular session. The Pot Is On was take three, so it would seem that they started with that. Lion's Den was then take seven. Groove in the Blues was take 12. Ballad was take 16. Undercurrent, take 19. And Funkosity, take 22. So they seem to have a couple of goes at it. Um, perhaps we don't know exactly which tunes were being played in between, but we would assume if you took a good take of Undercurrent, you probably wouldn't necessarily do no. a further one no however you know those are all assumptions but it's just interesting to think how an album sits together on on the vinyl but ne doesn't necessarily go like that in the studio undercurrent uh is a is a modal tune in many respects isn't it it's it's kind of a g minor a section and uh, a sort of relative major b flat middle section in an aa BA format. Harmonically and compositionally for me, the interesting thing is the fact that he uses a little ostinato figure that, that Kenny plays very rapidly. Very, It's a bit of a finger twister, like a tongue twister, to try and play uh, this. And Kenny Drew plays that very quickly and in both left and right hand together. Just to give you a, an overview of the, the whole structure of the tune, it starts out with, it's very fast, 320 beats per minute, which is right up there with the sort of Charlie Parker bebop speeds. It starts out with bass and drums laying down a G minor modal type background. Then Kenny comes in with eight bars of that pattern. That pattern keeps going underneath the tune, which is played in harmony by the trumpet on top and the tenor underneath. And when they get to, it's fairly similar on, on both occasions, uh, it's a sort of... And the second part of that is fairly similar, has a very slightly different end. But then they, they go into a very similar, although it's in B-flat, a very similar lick to the one that's been going on all the way through. And that, that continues similarly until it resolves. Uh, well, it goes to a dominant to get us back to the, the main part of the tune, which is what I played before. And all that middle is, uh, is over uh, what we call a pedal point. Uh, so a dominant of the B flat, which is F. And the thing I, I like about this album is, is everyone is really on good form and they play the solos are all great. Uh, everyone's absolutely at their, the top of their game. Uh, 
Uh, what do you have to say on uh, the matter of the tune and, and, and the playing, I guess? Yeah, I mean, for me, the interesting thing is that it is um, quite clearly a modal tune. Uh, and you have to remember that uh, Kind of Blue, the sort of iconic Miles Davis album, came out in 59, uh, so a couple of years or sort of just over a year before and um and and it was a hugely influential album and it really changed the way a lot of people started to think about jazz um and i mean this tune you know it the, the first section is is in g minor kind of aeolian or, or natural minor it, it's not really treated as g minor um in as much as uh you know it with g minor you, you would tend to emphasize the minor third in this it it's it's treated much more modally um and then that's contrasted with this the middle section, which is in the relative major, um, again, it's it's just like two contrasting uh, modes, really. The other thing that just occurred to me um, is the the ostinato uh, figure that Kenny Drew plays. It's a little bit like the on on all blues from Kind of Blue. Bill Evans plays this kind of ostinato figure. It's it's kind of slightly different. It's that it's a different mood with that tune. But it just occurred to me. I can't think of many more tunes where. Well, it's actually in the horns, isn't it? On 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 that he's he's playing a sort of trill isn't he yeah but that's what i meant i meant the tri- i meant the, the trill on the piano that he plays that little yeah right right but I, I meant the actual that little kind of trill that goes throughout the whole yeah thing. i mean that, i think yeah. that's just a sort of yeah yeah and then it goes a... yes yeah that's right uh but yes i i I mean, I think what's clever about this is the way that the ostinato becomes the tune in the bridge yeah yeah um and and it comes out of you know, it makes a lot of sense, I suppose, musically, therefore. The contrast with the horns playing something quite flowing with, with Kenny sort of yeah, yeah, underpinning that, quite literally an undercurrent. And then that stabbing on two and four, that backbeat uh, of the bass and piano. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, the drums catch all those things as well, but, but keep playing through. No, I, I think you're right. I think m- m- modal tunes become very much more popular, and certainly in the... If you look at the Blue Note catalogue, there's a, a period. Obviously, their earliest period was boogie woogie and swing recordings, and mm. Sidney Bechet and Lead Amid Lux Lewis and people like that. Um, and then they quite soon discover bebop, don't they? And they bring in Monk and people like that. But the early recordings are on Blue Note of that type of music, so around forty-five onwards to. 50 something mm. there's it's quite uh beboppy i suppose you'd call mm. it and then we have this transition from what we have what we got to now in this in early early ni- well 1960 mm. so the 60s become the period of the wayne shorter mm. blue note albums and joe henderson blue note albums mm. and mm. there's a move I notice it most with the career of Hank Mobley, where he starts out very changes-based and yeah. ends up very modal. Yeah, and yeah. obviously Hank Mobley is on this. And I think was it was it Hank Mobley or was who was the te- who was the original player that Miles Davis didn't like um, on the modal stuff because he said stop playing D minor uh, seven. It's, <coughs> it's not D minor seven. It's George was George Coleman. Was it George was it? Coleman? Yeah, George was Coleman. It? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was very much a, a change of of theory, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And and you hear Miles Davis. This tune is very much like the Miles Davis solo on "So What," isn't it? You know, he he goes, yeah, just sort of outlining the, the mode, yeah. 
you know, really just the chord, isn't mm-hmm. it? And, and, yeah. and obviously in this we're in G minor. Yeah. That sort of thing. So we have a, a quite, I think, quite a clear link um, with the new sound of jazz. Mm. And it's also a lot more based in the minor around here, isn't it? The lot of tunes written in the minor. I, I love Kenny Dorham's writing, actually. He, he's, he's, for me, one of the r- real innovators of tune writing on Blue Note in this period. Mm. He, he lo- writes some absolutely lovely stuff, which is connected to the past, but also of the time and looking towards the future. Mm. Mm. Well, we're going to move on to, unless you have anything further to say on no, that. No, I mean, uh, I, I, just to say that I agree, I think uh, everybody plays great on this album. It, it really, everybody's really sort of on top form in this album, I think. If there's any of our podcasts where listening to the album first is useful, this is probably the one because this material, you either know it, you've either heard it or you haven't. Uh, it's not like Blue Train where you almost certainly have heard it, uh, even if you didn't know you were hearing it on, on sort of TV programmes backing 50s-style scenes, etc. This stuff is a little bit more arcane, but I think it's up there with one all the best Blue Note albums mm. of this period in mm. terms of composition and of playing. And I don't think... It, it's a rare thing, and, and Kind of Blue is, is one of those rare things, so I don't think they went into the studio on the 2nd of March 1959 to say right, we're going to make an absolutely iconic record. They just went in to record another yeah. record. Yeah. They were trying something new, and the whole band that day was just in, all in sync in the right yeah. mood. Everyone was, you know, just on it and on their relaxed but creative, which mm. is the ideal position for mm. any of us to want to achieve in, in jazz, isn't it? Mm. Right, so we're now going to talk about funkosity. So funkosity, spelt funk hyphen cosity, uh, is a tune, again, you could call it modal, but it's a bit more 1625 in a minor um, format. It's, uh, it's an AABA tune again, and the bridge on this one, um, well, actually, the second A is altered, so it almost feels like it's going to be a blues because it starts up a fourth in the minor, mm-hmm. but then it goes back. It's only four bars long, and it goes back, which has the sort of structure of a blues. Then the bridge is uh, sort of like Love Me or Leave Me, and then we go back to the first round and round a minor sort of cycle for the final A. And then into the soloing. Um, and that's, uh, that's your domain here, Nick, because you, you took down this solo and uh, have things to say about it. Yeah, so I, I uh, transcribed this solo, and um, it's, it's an interesting solo. As you'd expect, he uses a lot of blues vocabulary. It's, a, it's sort of like a minor blues with an with a extended bridge. Um, but I think what's interesting is you also start to hear other influences kind of creeping into his playing um, at this point. Um, as we were saying earlier, around this time, the late 50s, early 60s, um, uh, musicians started to experiment more with modal tunes, um, really following uh, the lead of uh, Miles Davis and, and, and others who were experimenting with these sort of modal forms. And in the same way, um, piano players and other musicians really were, I suppose, were, were figuring out how to play over uh, these types of tunes. So it's, you have to, in a way, take a different approach from 
um, if you're playing over a, a sort of functional 2-5-y sort of tune um, there's much more kind of static harmony and and players were kind of figuring this out really um, and probably one of the most uh, influential players in terms of piano was McCoy Tyner who, who really was at the forefront of really figuring out a way of playing this stuff and obviously in the early 60s he explored this with John Coltrane um, in Coltrane's quartet um, but I start to hear in some of Kenny Drew's playing some of this influence creeping in. And um, the first example I want to talk about is um, it's bar 21 of his solo. Um, and it's really interesting here because he, he, he's in, he's basically in A-flat major. It, it, the, the changes are kind of going to A-flat major. So it's like B-flat minor, E-flat seven and A-flat major. But then over the, what would be the kind of the B-flat minor chord he plays this very dissonant phrase which is which is more like um a kind of b minor really i, I would say um that if you kind of look at the notes um and then he kind of drops that phrase down a semitone and plays virtually the same phrase but kind of now obviously in b flat minor um so i think what he's doing it's like a little chromatic shift where he's 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 shifted up for a bar, he shifted up to B minor, and then he's shifted back again to to B flat minor or E, e flat seven. Um, and and this is something that McCoy Tyner would do a lot. He he would do this kind of sometimes gets called side slipping, where you you move chromatically um, out of the key and then kind of resolve it back into the key to create tension. Because one of the I think one of the challenging things when playing modal music um, is how to create tension um, because you're very often like on on this tune you've got eight bars of f minor seven um you might have even 16 bars of of one chord um and this was one of the ways they would do it they would sort of shift chromatically outside of the key and back so let's just have a listen um to that to that phrase also uh, that phrase he's using fourth in in the uh in the phrase itself and this was another thing mccoy tyner started to really um develop was using fourths um, rather than thirds in uh, you, you know in the way he's building his lines so let's just listen to that phrase okay so the the next uh, little example is again sort of similar in a way uh, and it's an example of him uh, using sort of chord substitution so uh, as i said one of the difficulties where you have um sort of eight bars or 12 or 16 bars in one tonality is, is creating a sense of kind of forward movement or momentum. And one way you can do this is by kind of putting in substitution. So rather than just playing F minor seven, you're kind of in a way creating a little chord sequence within the line, which um, sort of suggests forward motion. So so what he's doing here, although the, the sort of prevailing tonality again is just F minor seven, um, he plays a little line here which um, kind of implies a move to the dominant, so to the C7, um, and then back to the F minor 7. So he's, so by you, by sort of substituting chords within the, within the line, he's, yeah, he's giving, he's giving it a sense of movement. So let's just have a listen to that. And the last example, it's, it's really the last phrase of um, of the solo. And I, th I think you've mentioned this a few times, Simon, how very often um, 
piano players will kind of, well, I mean, thinking of Sonny Clark, he used to do this as well. They kind of end with a, a kind of a bluesy phrase to kind of finish to finish off the solo, and this is what he does. So this is just a, a really nice little bluesy phrase, four-bar kind of blues lick, really, that he plays to finish off the solo. So let's just listen to that. Yeah, so I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that, Simon, what I was talking about. Uh, well, um, sort of slightly commenting on what you said and also adding to it, perhaps. Mm. The the McCoy Tyner thing, I think, is a, is interesting. The idea that with... I, I mean, what I like about the this album is it has a good... It's a transitional album in terms of it's not entirely modal. It's not entirely changes. No, no. And sometimes even within the tune... So here we've got this very F minory going on uh, for the, for eight bars, and then it goes up to, which might make us think it's going to go back to here, like a blues. Mm. But then instead of going, uh, it doesn't do that. No. So they're all eight bar phrases, although there's a blues sort of. Um, almost happening so we're kind of four bars short of a blues mm. and then in the bridge it's very much changes yes uh, yeah. Do, 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 yeah. and then presumably some sort of sort of feel of that mm. um and I, I like i like that balance between the ten the sort of tension and release of something which is essentially using people's modal, new fangled modal ideas, mm. but then giving them the release of playing over some more yeah, familiar changes yeah. in the bridge, for yeah, example. Yeah. Uh, and I agree totally that that the fourth, so mostly chords built, C minor, uh, that's a C minor seven chord, but people are starting to voice mm -hmm. in fourths. Mm -hmm. It's nearly all the same notes there. There is one extra one added, mm. but but, the but, but that's the um, and sort of moving mm -hmm. patterns, mm -hmm. and also mm -hmm. so the so what voicing, those sorts of mm -hmm. sounds. Mm -hmm. So de definitely a period of time where, where the tunes and the solos are becoming a lot more, you know, angular. Those sorts of figures. Instead of more the... Um, that The beboppy mm -hmm. kind of uh, enclosures and um, bebop scales. Oh, yeah, maybe the other thing to point out is that I think this album is brilliantly balanced between types of tunes. So the first one is an absolute burner, isn't it? Mm. Um, w uh, this one is like quite slow, really. Yeah, medium sort of swing, isn't it? I would say. Yeah, yeah sort of kind of on the bottom end of medium swing, 130 beats yeah. a minute, something yeah, like that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And um, and then we have different types of feel. We're going to talk about Lion's Den next, and that that has a, a different feel again, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, why don't we why don't we actually talk about Lion's Den now? Unless you have anything to add. No, no, let's move on. So moving on to the third track on the album, which is actually the last one on the first side of the original LP, Lion's Den, which I think we can fairly safely assume 
is a dedication to Alfred Lyon, who was uh, the owner of Blue Note at that time. So this tune follows a, an ABAC structure, uh, and the A section is kind of like a pedal section, which uh, where you have this kind of alternating uh, progression going C over G to B flat over G. Um, and then the, the B section um, has this more kind of 2-5-E structure where you have these um, two five ones. It's going E minor, A7, F minor 7, B flat 7, E flat minor, A flat 7, and then it goes back round again um, to the to the pedal section. Um, so Simon, you um, uh, took down the solo from this, so maybe you want to take over at this point. Yeah, I think... Uh you know, you gave a good description there. The, the the big difference between the two, that usually what happens in an ABAC section, it's two sets of 16, isn't it, really? And mm. it's the, it's in the second half of the 16 that we get a change. And the difference between the B section and the C section is the last two bars of, of the B section lead us back. Um, well, we're trying to go to C, but it never is in C, really because uh, of the pedal mm. but we're trying to go to c and then we get the c over g pedal whereas at the end of the c section it, it goes to d flat for for a bar before mm. you know w when they get to the end of the tune that that's what that that you know is more significant mm. mm -hmm. but then it go obviously they have to put in a g7 to get us back to where we want to be uh, and I uh, the other really big obvious connection is this i dig of you hank mobley's soul station mm. tune and um, considering that Hank Mobley is on this album and considering that Kenny's first statement in his solo is pretty much a quote of this I dig of you, I think he was all right with it. <laughs> uh, so we get an he starts out by playing a, a sort of chordal um, solo, which he's doing more and more around this time. Uh, in fact, I was listening to Whistle Stop uh, the other day and... That first tune, I think, is it called Philly Twist, the first tune? Yeah, yeah. He, he does quite a lot of kind of almost George Shearing-like block work, mm. and, and more than once in that album, uh, which is slightly after this undercurrent album. So he's playing something like this. Which many of you will recognise isn't that far away from the from the this I dig of you tune, uh, and th but then he he goes into some nice uh, those sorts of figures, which um, are much more pattern based, if you like. The overall flavor of this solo i mean he goes he, d he does go into kenny drew turbocharged land um quite quickly with stuff which uh, at full speed is quite difficult to play but the things i'd like to really pick out from here are the uh, obvious things in his style which have become clear to me to, to me at, at, at this point which are his use of blues much more so than someone like Sonny Clark. We, we mentioned, in fact, you spotted, Nick, in the previous series that Sonny Clark only really uses blues language on blues. And mm. um, if he does use it on a standard, it will be that sort of send-off at the end mm -hmm. and to say, hey, everybody, hit some down-home blues to signal the end. But most of the time, he's not 
doing that. I mean, sometimes on, say, rhythm changes, which are more closely related to rhythm and blues. But um, whereas I think Kenny Drew's very much a blues player. He, he's he got that in there all the time. Uh, and there are quite a few examples of, 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 of the sort of, you know, those sorts of licks, you know, where you have a something on the top. Um, those sorts of patterns. Uh, and the other thing is quite interesting is that we noticed it last in the last album. Um, he's getting this idea going, which is the, th the, the thirds. Or we heard in the last album, didn't we? Mm -hmm. But this time it's just the two. And he's starting to use those sorts of... And, and I think I associate that with also Bill Evans. I don't know if, if that's mm -hmm. one that you do. And something you picked out on the last album, again, he, he this use of sort of triadic things. So, and, and particularly in triplets on, on this, in this solo. That sort of thing. Where he's, uh, and at speed, that, that, those accents come out quite a lot. And the final thing I've noticed that he does and is very good at is changing between triplets and semiquavers. So here, an example here. That sort of beboppy mm. thing. But mm -hmm. he's, he, quite often people will go... Those sorts of figures, mm. which have tri triplets and quavers, but he's, he's going one further. I don't think I've got much more to say about that. The, the, perhaps that sometimes he, towards the end of this, he uses um, those octaves, which um, I associate quite a lot with players like um, Winton Kelly, for example, who will often have these uh, sort of figures, mm -hmm. won't he? Mm -hmm. Again, it's a nice balance between the old, the beboppy enclosure lines, and the more modern modal and slightly atonal approaches where mm. it goes slightly out and comes back in. Mm. Now, if you want to dig deeper into these solos, we do put them up on our Patreon page, and we would love you to join us on there and uh, donate, if, if, if you can, a small amount of money. Uh, it starts at £3 a month, and you don't even have to necessarily keep going. You can cancel at any point. Um, or you could do a one-off £10 a month subscription and cancel it for the next month. And that would be able to, we'd be able to then, well, particularly on this podcast, it would have been ideal if we could have afforded to um, clear playing the recording mm. as part of the podcast or sections of the recording. Um, I know some people are going to talk about co um, fair usage, but um, that's a myth, I'm afraid. <laughs> you either use it and pay for it or don't use it the only area where you can use it is if it's a lecture that's uh, what the fair use uh, you know writing a, a treatise or something like that and this is just a humble podcast for which we are most grateful and hope you enjoy it too do comment on any platform that you listen to our podcast on and we have a, a facebook page 251 facebook group you can comment on there and uh yeah we will uh Go on to side two.
the first track on side two of the album is a tune called The Pots On, and this is a really rhythm changes tune. Uh, it's a rhythm changes in F, um, but then for the middle section it goes up a fourth, and then it's the same changes basically up a fourth, which um, was fa fairly common. Not probably not as common as the straightforward rhythm changes, but um, uh, you know this was this was, was a form they used, um, and I think this has got a kind of slightly older kind of swing style I mean the bass it plays in two in in the head doesn't it mm. um, and there are these stops as well which kind of give it this slightly older style um, well you, you said you thought almost more kind of west coast possibly well it reminded so, me of of you know the a lot of um, Jerry Mulligan tunes are rhythm changes mm. based they, they, that he altered the rhythm changes a lot in writing tunes like um, Godchild for example mm. uh, but yeah, there, there was a that seemed it seemed to me that I've got rhythm was more of a blowing stalwart. Well, not more. It's difficult to say, but certainly very favoured on the west coast as a vehicle mm. for blowing. And I wonder whether it's got a bounce to it. This has yeah, it's, yeah, it's definitely quite it's a joyous a, yeah. sound. Uh, and I think also because he has that tag, doesn't he? Which um, which is what sort of reminded me of the west coast stuff yeah there's a little they sort of play between solos don't they it's like a little yeah a little, little send-off type yeah, thing yeah and uh everybody plays plays really strong on this and and um kenny plays a particularly kind of bluesy solo we talked about this quite a lot before but um yeah this solo he really uses the blues language quite a lot but um i think all of these tunes are really good vehicles for for soloing um uh, as you've said Simon, they they kind of it's a good mix of sort of progressive elements but but also there's enough kind of traditional blues and rhythm changes that that the soloists feel kind of comfortable soloing and everything kind of flows nicely yeah and that leads us nicely on to to the next tune which is uh, called groove in the blues and it's sort of a it's an f minor blues with a sort of private eye descending it's got the descending baseline, baseline which yeah. <laughs> kind of film noiry type <laughs> thing but again it's it's that familiar a familiar area for people mm. to solo on mm. and you know I'm, I'm i'm not quite sure when when the first minor blues was recorded but it you don't really certainly i would say don't think it came in the swing period i don't even know if did charlie parker record any well, minor I was thinking blues that. I'm, I'm just i'm not sure that he did i mean uh it definitely wasn't a, a, a sort of a common form was it um in the bebop period i, I can't really th i mean i we might be proved yeah, wrong, possibly, but uh, um, no, but I can't think of a, of a Charlie Parker minor blues. To be honest. No, and I think, I think the because the, of the way that minor chords, you can move minor chords around um, very nicely, can't you? Mm. Uh, and they they kind of all fit together. With the, they've got a sort of static quality, haven't they? Mm. Well, I think particularly as they were moving more to this kind of modal style, the yeah. mi minor blues worked really well because, as you said, they're they're, they're more open. Um, you know, they're 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 sort of uh, yeah, they're, they kind of they kind of work in that context better, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think the the thing I one of the things I remember early on um, in looking at jazz is that on anything that's modal and minor you can kind of play all the notes from the mode and they all they mm. all sound good mm. whereas if you're trying to play something major there are some notes which sound yeah, less, less yes, good and, yeah. and more good yeah uh 
and obviously people come up with the name the avoid note for the fourth on, on a mm. so if we hold down a C that's pretty nasty whereas if we hold down a D minor mm. that's actually quite pleasant mm. um, so I, I think yeah it, certainly around this period there are a lot of minor blues on blue note records and you know obviously there's the, the minor blues on so what with uh, all blues in that sort of six eight stroke three four kind of vibe and i suppose also you don't have many major modal tune blows no, no. despite the lydian chromatic tonal organization sort of george russell mm. um that came out around now didn't it yeah and, um, mid 50s wasn't it I think, sort of. people were sort of reflecting on that mm. Um, I, I love I love the balance of this album. I think it's got such a good layout. So you've got if we just go through them again, just to remind people of what what there is. This is on in album order. So this is the sort of uh, assembled idea. So we have undercurrent, which is really fast modal tune, very kind of energetic and a, quite aggressive, I suppose you'd call it, with slightly more angular playing. And then you have Lion's Den, which is uh, much more gentle but medium, sorry, Funkosity, which is much more uh, gentle and medium, and a sort of a minor, sort of modal but not quite modal. Mm. And then Lion's Den, which has the pedal point idea. Uh, again, it's a sort, it's basically a major tune but not massively major. And then we go to side two. We start out again with a bright, bouncy rhythm changes in, in the major then we go to a much slower groove in the blues which mm. has got that minor sort mm -hmm. of almost plodding um sort of mysterious late night feel about mm. it and the only thing we're missing is a ballad which we're going to talk about next the last tune on the album is a ballad appropriately entitled ballad with a, with an e and this is another kenny drew original uh and it's a it's a really beautiful tune actually i never really um knew of this tune and um having heard it i've, I've actually kind of i thought i think i might sort of incorporate it into my <laughs> sort of repertoire because it's a it's a really really nice tune um and and quite progressive as well uh, maybe we're going to talk a little bit about about the harmony in this um piece mm. what, what do you think about this simon well, I mean, Ballad is a... The first thing I thought when I saw the title and I heard that almost classical type introduction. Mm. Where it remind, there's a piece by Chopin, mm. famous piece called Ballad. But um, as soon as I heard it, I realised it had only a very passing resemblance. I think it's the tune in the liner notes which is dedicated to a certain young lady or right. whatever. So it's obviously a kind of a romantic... Mm. Um, mm. heartfelt tune but for me there's that you know there's time remembered by Bill Evans going around mm. uh, there's there's Monk's interest mm. in, in there's thirds. definitely some Monk influence in this tune uh, and yeah. I think that yeah this idea of minor chords moving around you know there yeah definitely that idea of 
shifting, floating tonal centres, mm. even mm. though it's very clearly ending in D-flat. Yeah, it, it is in D-flat, but it's it's definitely more modal in a way. It, it's not really... Uh, it, it seems like he's more interested in the in the sounds of the chord movements and the kind of the overall effect and mood than the sort of the nuts and bolts of the of the progression really um i mean this is this is a tune which has the only actual functional 251 in the whole thing is the one that leads us back to d flat isn't it each time uh well he does the he does have a little string of uh two fives doesn't he from bar five he does a little so he goes kind of yeah but um, what i mean is they they don't ever land on the one. Oh, not to the one no yeah. no the, the only yes that's right yeah it's, so the, the only completed 251 is is, yeah. is the e flat yes Exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I, I think it is. I, I certainly it reminded me of time remembered when I first heard it, mm. and I thought uh, those movements of minors was really interesting. Mm. And, and uh, I think it's only um, Freddie Hubbard who gets to yes. play the tune yes, on this, is, isn't yes, it? But yeah. there's a bit of sort of Mobley harmony going yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what would you like to say particularly about the the structure here? Well, it's it is a kind of a ba structure um and the, again in the in the b section it's very interesting because um he's he's literally just got these they're just major chords shifting aren't they so he it starts off in e major and it goes up a minor third to g major yeah. well, well i think it's that it's, B flat major. it's that connection thing with with the note and he did it we saw it in moments notice didn't we where you have yeah yeah Yeah, so he's using the common, he's finding the common yeah, note in the two exactly. sort of unrelated chords. And, and then the same thing with the D. Yeah. Well, it's just a trying to transposition down, isn't it? Exactly. Um, tone, yeah. and, and using, I suppose what we've seen a lot of in his work is the using of sequence, which, mm. which is what we've just described musically. Yeah. The yeah. idea of the same pattern, but moved down a bit, or up a bit. Um, but yeah, he also this linking note, idea mm. and and we we spoke about that also is is obviously a trend that's around because you have moments notice you mm. have tunes that sonny clark plays that have one quite often one note or yeah. one little pattern yeah that stays yeah. the same while the harmony underneath moves around to make yeah. it throw yeah. it into new perspectives yeah it it does sound very modern though doesn't it I mean, you can almost imagine it being recorded in 1980 by Winter Marsalis yeah, Quartet. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. No, it is. Roy yeah. Hargrave or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I suppose Naima has Yeah, has well, that. it's interesting. I mean, I think you, you can hear the sort of... Because Coltrane was also interested in these minor third movements, but in a way, he possibly got that from Monk because, of course, he, he worked with Monk, you know, mm. um, in sort of late fifties, and um, and he he always said that you know he regarded Monk as as one of his teachers, and and um, I think he he a lot of his kind of harmonic ideas really came from his time with Monk and talking to Monk and playing more probably more playing than talking <laughs> with Monk, but um, yeah. Uh, so you you can sort of see all of these influences in a way uh, in in this tune, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, and and the the way it ends as well, which we which you haven't written in you haven't written the coda no. in your lead sheet, no. but um, it's got a kind of descending thirds pattern, hasn't it? Which yeah. then yeah. eventually resolves to the and and ends on the D flat. Yeah, um, nicely. But but it's uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a a floaty sort of vibe about mm. it. Mm. 
And, and it finishes off an album which I think we've already discussed has a great balance of tunes and has a really nice, you know, the fact that it's three tunes aside as well. Um, so we're not, there's no asymmetry there. Mm. You've got nothing goes above eight and a half minutes. Mm. Um, this time people were starting to sort of stretch out onto whole yeah, no, it's quite sides of albums and things. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, much like Leapin' and Lopin, Sonny's, Sonny Clark's last recording mm. as, a, as a leader, um, this, it's a kind of mature Blue Note album, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it, It's a kind of hard bop classic. It should be a hard bop classic. Yeah, I, I think so. It's as, good as, it's, as, it's as good as any of those albums around that period, really. You know, the, the better-known albums from yeah. sort of late 50s well, Blue Note. One of the p- purposes of our podcast is to bring some things into the light which maybe uh, we think are slightly underappreciated. So uh, here's an album which I think could well fall into that category. Mm, for sure. Well, I think we'll we'll wrap it up there and we'll just uh, do a little bit of housekeeping and tell you what's coming in the next podcast. Next week will be the final podcast in this particular series and we're going to do something a little bit different. I mean, so far we've just been looking at one album. With this one, we thought we'd mainly focus on the Dexter Gordon album, One Flight Up, but also maybe look a little bit at um, the album Dexter Calling, uh, which was from a little bit earlier, which also had Kenny Drew on it. And also go on to talk about his relationship with Dexter Gordon um, because he actually, uh, after his move to Europe, he, he spent... Uh, quite a lot of time playing with Dexter and they they, um, recorded a lot of albums together Um, so we thought it would be a good opportunity to talk a bit more widely about about their their relationship Uh, and Simon you're going to um, say a bit more about uh, what we may be doing in the future yes well this is the end of of series two uh, second of our maiden voyages if you like and we've covered two lesser-known pianists uh, in that, but we are definitely thinking about different approaches for our next podcasts. We're probably going to do two series a year. We may come up with some special episodes as well on one subject at a time. If you've got any ideas, do get in contact with us and if you stuff you'd like to hear. Um, obviously, we have all the usual uh, ways of contacting us. You can contact us by commenting on the podcast, on the apps that you use, or the uh, Apple platform, or the Google platform, or Amazon, or Audible. And we can also uh, have a Facebook page, 2-5-1 on Facebook. And we'll put all these links into the show notes for this and all episodes. We'll put playlists for Apple Music and for Spotify, the two sort of main ones, I suppose, uh, but I'm sure you can find the whole album on YouTube as well. Uh, and we've banged on about this Patreon thing. It would be really great if people could uh, lend us a little bit of support so we can continue to make these and uh, maybe even get some uh, r- original recording material into our podcasts. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. And until next time, it's... Goodbye from me, Simon Whiteside. It's goodbye from me, Nick Tomorrow.